requires really bold policy um, to change the price signals dramatically, not, not incrementally, but dramatically. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week is an academic who has built something of a reputation as a soothsayer. She accurately spotted the trend towards SUVs and has spent years researching and analysing the future of cars. She worries that without significant changes to the way we use motor vehicles, we're going to fail to hit our climate targets. As someone who's been right before, hers is a voice worth listening to. Professor Gillian Annabel of the Institute for Transport Studies at the University of Leeds, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. So you're primarily at the Institute of Transport Studies in Leeds, um, which I hear a lot about, actually. Um, it has a particularly good reputation on transport stuff. Has that been has that been a long time in, in building and, and, and how did it happen? It has. I mean, it started off as a lot of transport groupings of transport professionals or academics did in the engineering school in uh, the University of Leeds back in the 60s. Um, transport engineers and um, then economists got together and that's that's really where the discipline started. That's not where I am situated in the whole subject, um, but that's the foundations of the Institute. And it, it is um, apparently the largest gathering of transport studies academics globally. So we're now more than more than economists and engineers and we've got all kinds of disciplines that we, we throw at it all. And quite interestingly, that because there's a slight sort of often groupthink amongst people, and certainly in transport, where you know, historically there's been you know, all, all the various thinkings around the way demand works and prediction provide, and you, know, you, you mentioned that it started out in the 1960s, and you certainly don't subscribe to a lot of those views. So has has there been a kind of wave of of fashions within the department, or actually is there quite a lot of difference of thought within it at any one time? I would say there is a difference of thought. Uh, I think my um, sort of categorization of it, um, it may be different by others, is that it was founded in those core disciplines and those core disciplines still, if you like, are the foundation upon which others have come in and um, integrated to some extent but there are still differences um, of opinion and differences of approach in the subject and how did you how did you find your way to being a, a car bashing transport <laughs> academic i started um as a lot of great uh, transport and environmental studies people do in in the discipline of geography but that's what geography allows you to do is really really ponder uh, the relationship between humans and their environment, whether it's the physical environment or um, how they're creating urban environments and regional development and this kind of thing. So that's, if you like, my, my sort of early uh, basis. But transport just came to me as something which seemed to almost be the, the glue um, that, that put places and people together. Um, and I just got more and more inf interested, not in the infrastructure so much, not in so much as, you know, how the the roads are planned and built, etc., but how people um, are increasingly mobile and increasingly connected 
to to places and what that means. So it was it was much more about uh, people's lifestyles and and what mobility means to people in order to do what they need and want to do. That sense of transport as the glue and the connection of people and places, that is exactly what brought me into transport and what I have always loved about it and that sense of you know, the, the dependence we all have on those connections to make human uh-huh. interaction possible. And it's actually one of the things I found most shocking about COVID because suddenly it's like, oh, the world can work without us connecting people and place together. And I'd kind of, I'd always assumed that that was never the, you know, transport was absolutely fundamental to modern human existence. It was just a question of the best way of doing it for, you know, efficiency and ecology. And suddenly that stopped being the case, it seems. I think so, although I've, I've been long been an advocate way before COVID of making sure we include the digital infrastructure and, and way that we connect in, um, include that as a transport means of transport, means of um, moving information, um, people, connecting people, etc. So, of course, we had that during COVID and imagine if we didn't, you know, um, it's, it almost doesn't bear thinking about, does it? <laughs> it, it, it literally, literally, I imagine, you know, what would, what would the pandemic have looked mm. like had it happened only in the 1980s? Mm. I mean, you mm. know, it, it, not, not even that long ago. Yeah. And you, you've made your name, um, particularly thinking about the future of, of cars, and, you know, I think it's fair to say you can be somewhat apocalyptic <laughs> about the future if we don't change some stuff. Um, how did you how did you kind of re- reach that the epiphany that you reached regarding the direction of travel? Pardon the pun. That yeah. currently on. Well, let me just say, um, I, I understand why you might use the word apocalyptic, but. As, of course, I, I have preferences for different ways of putting it. Somebody recently said to me that <laughs> I'm uh, inspirationally pessimistic, and I think I'd like to go go with that one. But um, I think I'll buy that. <laughs> I mean, I think that the car is clearly in the Western world and increasingly globally. Um, it's it's remarkable how many citizens of this planet still don't have access to a car and the car isn't still their main mode of transport. But in in Western economies where we have real problems of congestion, of environmental pollution, local pollution, and of course what it contributes to um, global climate change, and we have an increasing inequality between those that have a car and those that don't because society is, is increasingly oriented around a car so it's almost like you have to have a car in in many many respects in order to be able to participate so it the the idea is that I look at what the car um, has done in in terms of the, as as car ownership has grown uh, places have become more sprawling um, uh, people have become more um, attached to their car, dependent on their car, orienting their own lifestyles around their car. So it's a self-perpetuating dependency. And I want to look as, as to whether we can reverse that. Um, it's, uh, I suppose, as I was saying earlier, it's more than transport. It's about what kind of places do we want to live in? How, to what extent do people feel that they're slaves to this technology? Because in many respects they are, you know, the proportion of people's income that they spend on a car, um, you you can do these, it's amazing calculations that, that show that people have to work about a quarter of the hours that they are earning 
actually go towards paying for the car that they need in order to get to work <laughs> you see what I mean so it's you know it's kind of a, it really is when you actually look at um, the role that the car has um, it's it's not um, it, it's not a healthy relationship that we have with it and I don't just mean because of its environmental impacts I mean those feedback loops are fascinating aren't they because the whole thing's riven with feedback loops you buy a car you insure a car you've made so many upfront investments you're incentivized to use it more and more the more that you use it and that your neighbors all use it the worse local public transport provision becomes so you need to use it more and more which weakens local public transport provision so you need to use it more so more people need to buy it so they then become subject to the same feedback loops and kind of you you very quickly find that it no longer is a choice as you say but that also feels systemic so is that something that we just say, yeah, yeah, that's how the world works, um, because there's lots of things around the way the world works that are just facts and you note them and move on? Or is it something that's capable of being changed and tweaked? Well, I think what I like to, the way I like to put it is that it's it's not useful to jump to extremes. So it's absolutely a ridiculous notion that any future does not involve the car um, and does not involve the car being a, cent a very important and perhaps even majority um, mode by which we we travel. So I think it's really important. I mean, it, uh, just to just go off at a slight tangent and then I'll come back. I've been doing a lot of public engagement. In fact, I always have in my career, but it's been particularly wonderful this last few years around the climate crisis. So there's been lots of opportunities to, to have conversations. What I notice when we talk about personal transport for those that have a car is that, that people get very defensive and they say, but I couldn't live without my car. I couldn't give up my car. People can't not, you know, give up their cars as, and go to this extreme position. And I really want to find a way of making sure we can have a conversation, uh, which is about what role the car does have, the positive role that the car has rather than it being an all or nothing situation. That all sounds very well, I know, we have to, we have to come to some practical elements of that in a minute, but that's, that's um, just uh, what I want to start with. So it's not about getting rid of the car, it's not about thinking of a, of a life, life and society and places that don't have cars. Um, it's, I mean, one of the things that we don't talk about enough is reducing the number of cars that are out there so it is a ridiculous situation that we have ourselves in, whether it's a personal household basis or whether it's a, a, a societal basis, that we have these very expensive assets, um, these, these lumps of, of steel and plastic and everything else that, that have a lot of materials, a lot of energy and, and embedded emissions. And they, they are sitting there on average stationary for 97% of every single day. And that, that is the statistic that is consistent um, there. And it is um, a very expensive waste of resources and space and space as well, not just the, the resources in the car, but the space that it takes up, etc. So if we can get to a point of talking about access to a car rather than owning a car um, and really useful access to a car so that people can use a car for all those um, trips that a car is really good for, but just not take it for granted and ha and just use it for, for trips that could be done sensibly by other means. 
and we use that asset much more intensively, that will mean that it will that, that will pull through new technology much more quickly because the, the cars will effectively wear out um, and we'll renew them more quickly and we'll, we'll get so you know the 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 um, you know whether it's electrification or whatever it is will just come through and and, and be much more prevalent much more quickly. Um, this makes sense from a societal level. It's just a very diff difficult thing to to move away from personal ownership. It is, isn't it? Because it feels like that would also save lots of people lots mm -hmm. of money. And generally, if you can save people money, they like doing it. Uh, but that yeah, hasn't we haven't really made a lot of, lot of progress in that regard. And is that partly again that you you you've got a kind of chicken and egg problem? It, it'll work when lots of people do it, but for lots of people to do it, it needs to already be working. Um, or or are there other reasons why it's so hard to get that kind of idea off the ground? Yes and yes. So, <laughs> um, so the, the chicken and egg is interesting. I think, you know, and there are lots of areas of policy like this. Yes, it is chicken and egg. So that what that means is it, it, it requires really bold policy um, to change the price signals dramatically, um, not not incrementally, but dramatically to change the the, you know, to change parking access to free parking and residential parking change that really quite dramatically and consistently uh, this kind of thing so so that's that's the there is there are chicken and eggs once people own a car as you just said before said it much better than me but once they own it they've paid for it there's all these sunk costs in it of course they, they they're very protective or they're going to use it um it, it that is actually perfectly economically rational behavior even though it might not be economically rational on a trip by trip basis, if you see what I mean. Um, you know, just just by the way, this is one of the, the things I have um, little uh, sort of battles I have with some of my my colleagues that work on the economic modelling side of behaviour. And there's a there's a you know very classic mantra that people aren't economically rational, you know, and these models go wrong because people just don't follow this economic rationality. My argument is that everybody's rational. It, they just have different priorities and they, they value different things. Um, and that's that's what we have to get better at understanding. And so then that brings me to a second point as to whether there's something else going on, which absolutely there is with a car in particular. Um, there are really sort of soft psychological factors that are extremely important about a car being something that signals something about yourself, you know, your your wealth, your status, your right of passage as you grow up um, and have passed a test. And, you know, this is another stage of your independent sort of life. Um, uh, now, that that attachment, that way of of um, own, owning or having access to a car that signals that identity is different for different people. For some people, the car is just a you know, somewhere to, you know, get from A to B, something to get from A to B with. But for others, it's it's really very, very different. Um, and we have to understand that. And I read a number of articles, mostly a few years ago now, maybe around the 2015, 2016, 2017 time, talking about the fall and the number of young people taking out driving licenses and how the, the next generation coming through didn't see cars 
in the same way as a status symbol. But then I also read some other people say that's all nonsense and they weren't taking out driving licenses because insurance mm-hmm. was too expensive for young people. Uh, do you have any sense as to whether there is a generational difference in the way that cars are seen as statements around your wider personality mm-hmm. or not? The So what I'm about to say is partly evidence-based, but also it is a little bit too early and some of the research hasn't been done um, in the depth that we might like to in order to really understand this but that yes the figures are there the figures are there now in over a long enough time period over a couple of decades for us to say that the pattern of uptake of licenses and cars is different in in these younger generations to their parents generation so they are um getting their driving licenses later and they're owning a car later um One of the things that is happening, though, with that same generation is that when they hit the same milestones that their parents did, but they're hitting them later. So having mainly having a family, that the level of ownership of cars at that point is very similar to their parents at that same mile life life point. Um, So that's important to understand. There's definitely there are definitely economic factors that are led to this. So that whether it's you know it's the cost of owning, um, you know choices that young people are going to having to make, renting, put saving for a deposit or buying a car, um, lots more um, younger people going to university where traditionally even a car was was um, a later sort of uh, purchase or whatever, um, staying at home in the family home for longer so lift for mum and dad um, is is available etc etc so there are lots of these sort of structural factors and economic factors what i would say however and that we forget a lot is that it's not just that attitudes change and then behavior so it's not that we have to say oh you know suddenly the car dropped out of favor it wasn't such a status symbol that led to a drop in in car use or ownership or whatever, we forget that it can happen the other way around, that people can change their attitudes in response to having been, if you like, forced or um, sort of corralled into a certain behaviour. And what I really think has happened is that as a result of these structural factors that have meant that that younger people have sort of been forced into this later car adoption, is that that has changed their desire for a car. Um, and they've looked sort of elsewhere and that um, sort of the aspiration has has literally switched to things like having the latest smartphone or whether they live in a place actually where it's really quite accessible that's become a bit cooler hey I've got you know I could you know I've got cycle paths or I've got great bus services or I've got car club uh, down the road or you know that has actually become quite much more valuable for some uh, people than it used to be. So you can't sort of, it's not a linear thing. It's a, it's a, something that's changed in, in both the attitudes and the behaviour, I think, over the last couple of decades. And to that, and that to an extent links into the point we were talking about earlier around feedback loops, doesn't it? it? Does. The more people buy cars, the more people are going to buy cars and the less they do, the less they do. These, you know, maybe these loops can w- work in the opposite direction as well. Yep. As it doesn't necessarily only yep. go in one direction. Now, one thing you you wrote about a while back, and I can't quite remember when it was, was, was about the rise of SUVs. Mm-hmm. And I'd never really noticed this. I, I don't drive, um, but I live in a residential street. And I started noting as I walked down the street what proportion of 
the the cars in my street were SUVs. And I realized just how many there now were and how fast it's increasing and how much bigger they are. And I was absolutely amazed, actually, that I realized that you know, I spent so much of my time thinking about um, new mobility and the climate crisis. And we're just buying bigger and bigger machines to transport the same number of people, which feels pretty much the exact opposite of the direction we should be going in. Um, you, when did you first sort of spot this and why is it happening? Well, I I mean, I, I'm not I'm not particularly um, keen on on sort of uh, saying I told you so. I'm certainly not good at, at blowing my own trumpet or anything like that. But I I went back quite recently to a report that I'd written. I think it was 2005. And it was pulling apart, at that point, the government's um, plans for transport to meet what was then the 60% carbon reduction target by 2050. So we've gone from 60 to 80, and now we're at net zero um, in that timescale. And I was looking at trends in car ownership. And, and at that point, we were, we were mid-real diesel car frenzy. And what happened with diesel cars is that cars got larger because although um, diesels were marketed and known to be more fuel efficient, what actually happened was that people took that fuel efficiency gain in the form of being able to afford to run a larger car. And so that developed a trend towards larger vehicles and a taste for larger vehicles. Um, and at that point in the 2005 report, one of my sort of, you know, executive summary, these are the conclusions, it said something like, you know, this trend towards large cars could be the thing that really um, scuppers our the transport sector's ability to 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 meet its any of its targets, and unfortunately that is what's happened, and that's happened at a global level actually, not just here. Um, but this this trend towards SUVs is a global trend, and although we're moving away from diesel, um, you still have the trend towards um, larger vehicles, and. What I hear a lot is a real blame um, of the consumer. You know, the consumers just don't behave like they're supposed to. You know, there's there's good consumers and there's bad consumers. I don't see it that way. I think that what has happened is a real concerted effort from the motor manufacturers to differentiate themselves in the market, to grow their market. They've produced larger cars, more gadgets in the cars, they finance these cars a little bit more favourably because finance options, people buying cars are actually, it's actually, it would be incorrect to say buying cars, leasing cars, um, more and more through finance deals. Um, all the signals, the advertising up until recently, majority of the advertising has been for these, these vehicles. Um, so all the signals in the market, all the things we know commercial sector has huge influence on us as consumers um plus what the availability of of, of of what what's there when you walk into the showroom so all the signals have been there and and it's yeah it, it, it's just got completely out of hand and the other thing to say is that it's where the the larger vehicles is where the motor manufacturers have apparently i don't really understand the business models but apparently made the majority of their profits so of course they've been pushing for them 
um, you know, and yeah, that's, we have that situation. So at the moment, is it a reasonable summary to say that we have put an awful lot of effort in reducing the emissions, but actually that's on a light for light basis, but all of the savings on a light for light basis has been reabsorbed into the fact that the vehicles have become bigger and Absolutely. therefore less efficient. And, and it's, it's worse than that in as much as everyone will know that cars don't say what, um, do what they, what it says on the tin. In other words, it says you're going to get X miles per gallon and you never do. And that gap between what it's the what what um, the official test cycle miles per gallon says this car is going to achieve versus what it actually achieves has been growing. So it was at a you know it used to be about fifteen percent sort of uplift by the time you you drove that thing out of the showroom. Um, it reached an average of about forty percent differential, um, and. The, the worst th the thing is that the larger the car is, the greater that gap has been. So not only have we been sort of driving around cars that because they're heavier per kilometre, they are um, the, the worst in terms of fuel economy. The gap between the official fuel economy and on the road of fuel economy has been even worse. Um, and it, it's so it's double bubble, if you like. And, you know, my my concern has been and the thing that I've tried to just kind of turn turn the um, spotlight on is of course we've had a target for electric vehicles of course we need that it's, it's there's all kind of problems with EVs as well but you know they are um, the main technology that's going to um, help and if we get it right also help the energy system do some of the things that that, that, that we need it to do but we've focused on EVs and, oh, we're up to 1% of sales, 3% of sales, 7% of sales, whatever it might be. Whilst at the other end of the market, you've got SUVs going from 13% of sales to 17 to 22 to 24 to now 32% of sales. Um, and not as, as though, you know, it's a bit sort of like, oh, look, there's a hot air balloon. You know, <laughs> sort of, you know, don't look at what's going on over in the other direction. Um and that's it, just been absolutely horrific. And the, the, then, then what happens is, of course, that you have had this happening now for the last decade or two. The cumulative emissions, um, the, the total amount of emissions cumulatively that these vehicles have produced over that time and will continue to because they'll be on the roads, you know, they've been purchased today and they'll be on the roads for another 15 years. They'll be purchased right up until the end of this decade and they'll be riding around until the 2040s. It's absolutely horrific. It, it blows every every trajectory out of, out of the water um, in terms of um, EVs riding in to save us. So basically, you're saying transport isn't going to be able to hit its targets if we don't do something about SUVs. Is that that's yeah? That's that's what our our calculations suggest. So, in the UK Energy Research Centre, um, I've worked with my colleague Christian Brand now for for many years developing a a, a model of the UK transport system that can also link into the energy system. But the transport system has a very very fine, uh, sort of, um, granulated. Um, picture of the vehicle technologies um, that exist or could exist and we you know we we sort of 
use scenarios to, to think about what the different sales, proportionate sales might be of these technologies. Also thinking about how, how far they might be trapped. Be, be you know their utilization rates as well um and we just can't make things um we can't reconcile the transport sector with these suvs now if we stopped if we could stop selling them from today um uh, we might have a chance um so if we stopped selling suvs and even if we even if we did if, even if we kept on with the trajectory of evs at a fairly modest rate but switch those SUVs to smaller petrol cars, it would make a huge difference. It's fair to say, I think, that this wasn't a big issue in the transport decarbonisation plan that the government produced this year. Um, why is that, do you think? Um, I think a lot of the um, a lot a lot of what happens around the vehicle fleet is subject to, to quite a lot of uh, peer peer pressure um sorry lobbying is what i meant to say um it is a very difficult situation politically because the motor industry is is um accounts for a lot of jobs not just in the on the on the supply chain on the you know the uh, assembly lines but in terms of the supply chain um and what we don't do well enough is in fact nobody was really doing it at all as far as i can see is really understanding where the jobs could be instead for the same but 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 in a way that's not just some paper exercise of you know if we built this stuff it would be this many jobs and if we built cars you know we know it generates this much but really trying to understand what the skills bases are and how you would retrain regional policy to say we need to do it and we need to build these skills up in these regions i mean this is what it would take and that's the only way politically that it will it will be palatable to people if they have that information at their fingertips but that information doesn't exist they don't argue the case in that in that way so they jump to the economy and the jobs and the political um acceptability of what they're saying so if i were to ask the government about the because they've got graphs in the transport decarbonisation plan so the transport's going to be decarbonised um what would they say on the suv question how, how how does the problem that you've identified not flow through into the data that they've calculated what are they doing differently to what you're doing that means that they think it's going to be okay okay a couple of things i mean one their um their estimates for the uptake of evs are quite optimistic now, we have run scenarios with optimistic electric vehicle uptake as well, and our scenarios still don't achieve the same um, carbon savings as their models do. So that's not the only reason, but they do have more optimistic um, scenarios for EV uptake. They have lower um, penalties for the real world emissions. So this idea that there's this gap and there's a bigger gap for the larger vehicles and their models aren't as sophisticated as that. They have a sort of average penalty and don't account for the fact that if the SUV portion, proportion grows, then that the average gap grows as well. So that has been quite a big factor in the past. It's less of a factor. Their models do better with that than they did, but there's still 
uh, an opt optimism bias, as you as you might say, in their models. The other thing is something called induced traffic. So the thing with electric vehicles is that the cost of motoring will go down. So the marginal cost, the cost, you know, on an everyday basis, you're, you know, what you're paying on a weekly basis to get from A to B um, is going to be a lot lower. Um, and, and sort of even uh, more dangerous than that, really, in terms of people's decision making is that people aren't necessarily going to sort of even see what they do pay because it's going to be sort of wrapped up in sort of pay as you go sort of deals or it's going to be in, integrated with your electricity bill. So, so that signal, that price signal is not going to be there. And when I side with my um, economic modeler colleagues, um, that could lead to um, a very significant uplift in the, the amount with which cars are used. So that in itself, um, if that happens in the next decade or two, when we haven't completely greened our electricity, um, then um, that could actually have a, you know, big impact on on carbon emissions some of some of the um some of the modeling that um the department for transport does is very much based on zero tailpipe emissions um they're not factoring in the carbon from the electricity that's somebody else's that's based that's the department of business uh, economy and industrial strategy deals with the sort of elect the, the, the emissions from electricity so so dft don't have to include it in their transport sector emissions they've just passed it over whereas our sorts of modeling often tries to really put um the emissions where they're where they're generated um where who's you know that's in the sector that that's responsible for them so so there are all these different different kinds of um what differences between the modeling approaches i was in a motor industry conference a few months ago and someone said that they estimated that the true carbon reduction from an ev compared to a, a petrol car on a light flight basis was only about 50 percent um do you have a, a sense of of how much of the carbon is saved by it switching on a completely light flight basis from a well, petrol true car to an electric car? Style, um, I have to say it depends. <laughs> so uh, there's lots of what they call life cycle model modeling that goes on to really understand the the total carbon footprint from cradle to grave of given products, and, and EVs is certainly no exception. So there are now lots of studies that have tried to look at this, and I'd say they. I don't fully 100% stand by what I'm about to say, but my general impression is that the savings for an electric vehicle range from about as little as only about 15, 1.5%, you know, saving to 75% saving. The, the big difference, the, the, what really makes the difference is where the EVs are produced so the energy system and the, the carbon intensity of the electricity grid and so on in any given country, whether it's China or Taiwan or USA or here, is very different. So it depends on literally where the, the cars are made and the, all the, the various components. Um, and the other thing um, that makes a difference is um, what you assume is going, well, many other things, what you assume is going to be the the, where the car is going to use, be used and therefore what the carbon intensity of the electricity is of, in that car that's going to, where it's going to be used. 
Um, and then you've got all kinds of other assumptions about what sort of energy or carbon footprint to give any any individual component. And then the final thing that really makes a huge difference are, is your assumptions about how long the battery is going to last and what you might do with that battery at the end of its life. Um, if you want to do this whole cradle to grave thing, then if you just assume that the battery is just going to be completely just just disused at the end of it versus being recycled somehow or used in some some big battery farm for for you know um, end of life uh, life batteries it makes huge difference so I'm afraid it's a really really complicated um, equation I think I what I take from the few studies that I've looked at is that even right now even somewhere where there's say a lot of coal in the um, in the energy generation mix EVs are just about still better than um, uh, your equivalent fossil fuel vehicle and that is mainly simply because of the efficiency of that vehicle so the losses incurred in internal combustion engines and the energy uh, when it's when it's used in that form and, and generates forward motion in that form the losses are horrendous but the losses in electricity are mainly between the the, the, the supply station the electricity power station and the car there's actually so many fewer losses actually in the vehicle um, as it's being powered and that's so that's just a sort of simple if you like uh, sort of uh, factor of 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 how the power is generated. So the last person I had on the podcast who talked a lot about the loss, the 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 efficiency loss in propulsion was Horace Dediu, um, who came on to talk about micromobility. And his answer was: cars, whether they're electric or petrol, cars are just crazy. People aren't going to keep using them because they're crazy. They're going to use micro vehicles because they make sense. Um, and he thinks the future is going to be different forms of micromobility. Um, at the other extreme, there's a YouGov poll recently that said basically people aren't interested. Yeah, this, this, this is irrelevant to me. Well, do you think that different forms of mobility, such as micromobility, such as e-scooters, e-bikes, etc., are going to be a big part of the future, whether it's the answer or the future, or do you think actually that's not a, that's that's a distraction? Well, okay, a couple of things to say. Firstly, I completely agree with him in terms of the efficiency, the poor efficiency of the, of the car, regardless of propulsion, its powertrain uh, is horrendous. The problem is that what's actually happening in the car market. I talked to you about SUVs and the, and the motor manufacturers getting people's tastes. What's actually happening is a lot of SUVs are very large cars. And not only that, with the sort of electrification and digitization of everything, these cars are becoming even more desirable in terms of their internal uh, gadgetry, you know, curved entertainment screens, integrated kettles, um, you know, uh, and goodness knows all kinds of things probably that I haven't even thought of or we haven't thought of yet, but it will appear. So these are becoming and highly personalizable. So you get in your car, it syncs with your smartphone, it knows your seat position, radio, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? So on the assumption that these cars are going to be affordable, we know they're going to be affordable for some proportion of society but but probably there will be a trickle down eventually so that they become more um possible for for mass market 
on that assumption, these are highly desirable things to own. And when it comes to micromobility, they have a place. They have a place in highly accessible uh, urban environments where um, we have something akin to sort of 15, 20 minute neighborhoods. So this is where you have, you know, just a lot of opportunities to shop, work, leisure, etc. in, in um, close quarters, um, where the infrastructure um, is less favorable for the car because it's congested or the parking is, is inconvenient or whatever. So, of course, it's better to jump on, a, on something that you just grab and go and can get around. So they have a real place there. Um, they possibly have a place to connect you into the transport system. So you live somewhere, you can zoom off to your tram stop or train stop or whatever, um, carry the scooter with you and off you go. Makes for a much more integrated and seamless public transport network. But again, that tends to be in highly connected places. Um, the exception I would say is e-bikes. So e-bikes have, um, obviously quite a long range, let's just say roughly around 15 miles, um, or certainly the average commuting distance on an e-bike on the continent where e-bikes are much more um, further on in terms of their adoption is around 15 kilometres. Um, and I think there's a, um, a series of journeys in, in the sort of eight to 15 kilometre range that are really difficult by, to serve by bus because they tend to be those bus journeys that take ages for that smallish distance. Um, they can be um, difficult by car because you're driving into congested areas from maybe the outskirts of a town or a city. And I think e-bikes could really help with, with the commute and taking the pressure off of public transport and some of the infrastructure. But then just so just finally to say, that when you look, when you, I mean, it doesn't take much really to think about the sorts of journeys that micromobility can serve. Those journeys in, in the less than 15 mile bracket are only responsible, only at the moment, account for around a quarter of all car miles. Not car trips, car miles. It's miles that's important for carbon. So then you have, you know, a good three quarters of the current journeys and, and distance that's traveled by by car that is very difficult to serve in any other way other than the very long distance things by by rail or unfortunately air um, or more efficient car use and more shared car use um, or you change destinations of where people go and you try and shorten some of the journeys so that they do fit in to, uh, to to be usable by these other modes. So I feel like I haven't said that very well, but I think we've really got to get things into perspective and, and we, can, we can definitely try and um, see where micromobility fits to maybe even um, use them as a, as a lever to make more accessible, walkable, cyclable, et cetera, cities. That might mean that they become more desirable places to live. That might mean that, say, this younger generation who haven't yet bought a car and they start to live there really don't ever need a car because they, they can see all these other ways of, of doing it. So there are big opportunities there. Um, 
But in terms of thinking about what the car really serves, those longer distance leisure journeys, the family journey, the journeys involving um, carrying stuff, the visits to friends and family, um, that's where most of the miles are accounted for in a car. And I really don't think many of us can imagine that micromobility will be suitable for those. Final question from me. Um, prediction as opposed to what you want to happen. Do you think we're going to make it in terms of net zero? No, I don't. And what do you think the one thing that people listening to this could do to influence that would be? That is such a difficult question. I mean, I think on the on the basis of what we've been talking about today, if there are any listeners that are thinking of, of, of getting a car and it's not, not an electric car yet, then go for the for the most efficient fossil fuel car that you can. That car, whether you have it or not, is going to have a lifespan somewhere in this country or the globe for the next 15 years. Um, so I think that is very important. Um, I think I I'm trying to phrase something which is around an, an openness to, to quite tough decisions coming down the line. The only way this is, this is going to happen is, is not through individual action, unfortunately. It's only going to happen through tough policy and regulation. And the only way that's going to happen is to, to have public acceptability, which requires proper conversations. And what I really want to see happening is people thinking about the future and thinking, you know what? It seems pretty obvious that the climate is changing, that we're in for a turbulent time. That means that when a policy is being proposed that says you're going to have to pay more each time you fly or whatever, then I can't compare that to the fact that today it's really cheap to fly um, and that's, that, that feels like a huge jump. I have to compare it to the fact that if that doesn't happen, then I'm not going to be able to fly at all or my children aren't going to be able to fly at all in 15 years time. Um, we can't we can't compare our cosy, affordable lifestyles now to these potential tough policies that are going to have to come into place. We've got to think about the fact that if we don't do them, then we're going to it's going to be even worse for us or our children in 15 years time. And I'm not even talking about worse in terms of apocalyptic flooding or or heat waves, which will happen to some extent. I'm talking about worse in terms of there will be more expenses that will filter into us as is society. Prices will have to rise because we will be repairing our roads more. We will be having to, to put in all kinds of adaptation measures that we're all going to have to pay for. And it's going to make everything more expensive. So we need to try and think about the consequences for the future and our future generations when we're trying to uh, decide whether we accept a bit of discomfort now. That was indeed inspirational pessimism, Gillian. Okay, uh, well, thank you very much for joining me on the Freewheeling <laughs> Podcast. It's been You're great talking to welcome. you. You're very welcome. Yeah, and you.
Well, that concludes the freewheeling podcast for this week. Thank you very much to my guest, Professor Gillian Annabel of the University of Leeds Institute for Transport Studies. And thank you to you for listening. I'll be back next week. See you then. Goodbye. <laughs>